is the Hamilton film about Christine O'Neill. Did the dancing baby grow old with Ali McBeal? Okay, stop everything. An email's come in from my mum. <laughs> it begins. Dear Helen and Oliver. Very formal. <laughs> thank you for a very entertaining hour of fun and interest. Ah, has she been listening to the Home Entertainment album? She has. As ever, you gelled swimmingly well and interjected with humour. Well done indeed. Thank you. That is sort of the principle of the piece. So it's like a five-star review so far, Ollie. <laughs> yeah. Only one fly in the ointment. And then she's put ellipses, but she's done that thing, you know, where people, rather than doing three dots, put like 11. She knows how to play things for drama. She's an actor. That's right. Please, please, Helen. Mm -hmm. If the subject of me dressed in PVC holding a whip comes up, obviously it might, I I need reassurance that an explanation accompanies such a statement. Okay. You did did mention having seen such a photo in the Home Entertainment album. Uh, She says, The said photo was for Ugly Model Agency, who specialise in the portrayal of unique characters. So the said image was part of a collage featuring several characters. Five exclamation marks. Much obliged... Three exclamation marks. Well, I'm terribly sorry. Although, got to say, Karen, you pull off the outfit and the expression excellently. You've got the range. <laughs> She's actually uh, recently dug out a load of her old publicity shots, which she used to take to auditions because, you know, pre-websites, that's what you did if you were a jobbing actor. Yeah. I'm in some of them as a oh, baby. Wow. <laughs> Part of the collage. So there's like one of her doing the kind of gypsy crystal ball thing and then there's one oh. of her doing the I'm the sultry girl next door thing and then I'm in the middle which I suppose is the kind of Venn diagram between the two. Well, I can play mums. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly that. I know we live in a different world now in so many ways but it lists her height and her hair and her eye colour but also her bust size gosh, and glove size. Hmm. I mean, she did do hand modelling. Well, that makes sense, because I was thinking otherwise, is it for period dramas where they need to know if they have enough gloves in the wardrobe? <laughs> yes, for hand modelling it makes sense, but considering she used it for acting as well, I just can't imagine a casting director, you know, at the RSC, being like, no, Lady Macbeth has size six gloves, it cannot be seven, it's got to be six. I've seen very few pictures of my mother uh, that predate my lifetime, but... I did recently see a couple of my parents' wedding pictures, which I had not seen oh, yeah. before. And she has very strong help-me eyes in them. So do you think that is a cry for help? Or do you think it is just that um, she was a bit overwhelmed maybe by having her photo taken? I mean, you're not Mm-mm. someone who naturally likes having your picture taken. So that's that's the moment being captured. She likes it even less, but I think maybe something in her saw how the next 49 and three quarters years were going to play out. <laughs> 50th anniversary this year and yesterday she said to me don't you dare do anything to celebrate it michael who lives in singapore uh says i recently discovered that singapore has the world's first salmon vending machine it's got like 12 of the world's first salmon vending machines right he's attached a photo so we can see proof that one certainly exists yeah it's a salmon vending machine all right it is if you imagine a salmon vending machine that's what it is uh, you can now purchase Norwegian salmon, he says, at any time of the day or night, 24-7. Yes, I think Norwegian salmon is the name of the company. Right. So it gives the gist that the salmon is Norwegian, but it's possible that it isn't. Fish is an odd product, he says, to sell in a vending machine for obvious hygiene and foodborne illness reasons. Well, 
Is it more weird? Because a vending machine can be refrigerated exactly. and airtight. So is that yeah. more weird than an open counter in a climate that is yes. as warm as Singapore? Yeah, fish markets. What's that about? Like, Actually, I think a sealed vending machine is a perfectly reasonable place to buy a piece of fish. I wish we had them here. You just stick your mouth by the uh, exit slot and just <laughs> let the salmon shoot in there. Helen, answer me this. What other weird and potentially lethal food products are available in vending machines? And whilst you're at it, when did we start putting such food in these machines and why? Okay, so the salmon vending machines he's talking about, it is frozen, vacuum-packed, 200-gram pieces of salmon, Mm -hmm. and the vending machines are minus 20 Celsius. So I think that's pretty hygienic as as salmon storage goes. They've been around for a bit over a year. I suppose what's odd about it is that it's a convenience, isn't it, a vending machine, and salmon doesn't feel like a convenience product in Britain, it feels like a luxury. But also, what what situation are you in where you're on the street and you need a 200 grams of frozen salmon? Well, you might yeah. just be on your way home and think, shit, I don't have anything to cook for dinner. Yeah. But Michael asks about other weird products available in vending machines, and it surprised me more that Singapore has ready-to-eat chilli crab in vending machines. Again, mm. you wouldn't think um, particularly a convenience item. Oh, shit, I'm out of chilli crab. It's just not something I've ever thought. Well, it is delicious, though, Ollie. Yeah, maybe that sure. is a thing in, in Singapore. And you can also get um, pizza made from scratch, so you can watch the machine spreading the stuff on the dough. That's fun. Oh, you know what was fun like that was um, getting my cat collar done at Pets at Home on the machine. You can see it being inscribed. Oh, yes. Yes, that is really fun. I didn't oh, even mind that he lost it twice in the first month because I was just like, I'm going to go and get another one. Alvin. <laughs> In Japan, I remember seeing vending machines of lots of kinds, including, you know, one of those fairground grabbers? Yeah. They have one of those, but for desserts, like cake. So hold on. So there's a chance that you put your money in and you don't get any cake? Yeah, well, th- that's the game. Well, sure, I know. But it, it's it's one thing, isn't it, to have a food reward in a game context, like when you're in a casino or a seaside you know, attraction. But when you're in a supermarket, to put an element of risk into a food transaction feels like something I don't want to do. Yeah, although you can probably overall get more money for some cakes out of people who want to play to get the cake than you can if they could just buy the cake without the thrill of the chase. <laughs> it sounds like there will be blood. <laughs> I grab the cake, I grab it all up, and then it drops because yeah. the game is rigged. Uh, but he asks why we start putting such food in vending machines, then I would argue that... That would be first when there were automats, which was a style of restaurant. I think the first one was in Germany in 1895, where it was a bit like a diner, Mm -hmm. but you would put a coin in a slot next to the food that you wanted to buy, and then like a little door would open and you could take the slice of pie or whatever it was. But behind the sort of machine operators was the kitchen where they were making the pies, putting Mm -hmm. them on a plate, putting them behind the little doors. So there's a lot of restaurants in Japan these days that are basically that, aren't there? Yeah, well, they were very popular. Like, I think New York had a lot of them. And then when fast food restaurants started to catch on, the automats kind of died off. But, like, till about the 50s, they were really popular. We had a similar experience in Osaka, didn't we, where we went to a vending machine outside a restaurant, punched in what we wanted, paid for it, got a little ticket, and just took that ticket into a small place with a cook who actually prepared it, which is a bit like an automat. It just avoided the embarrassment of not being able to speak any Japanese and not knowing what the hell was going on. It seemed quite efficient. Uh, it's more of a surprise to me, some of the non-food items, such things as army supplies and gold ingots. And um, in uh, the USA and airports uh, between the 50s and the 70s, apparently there were vending machines selling life insurance policies 
covering <laughs> death in the event of a plane crash. Wow. Yes. That's So it's not yeah. a hygiene problem, but it seems a little bit grim. You still get odd vending machines at airports, though, don't you? You get them for, like, yeah. expensive headphones, I've seen. Yes. Or, like, expensive beauty products. I can understand paying a fiver for something that you couldn't, like, try on your hand. But when it's, like, 30 quid... Benefit, isn't it? Have a, a It is of, benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that weirds me out the most, the benefit machines at the airport. Yeah, but I see what they're doing there, though, because their brand is like 1950s kitsch. It's Americana is, is what they're tapping into, I think. But yeah, bearing in mind that every time I've tried to get a Cadbury's Holner out of a vending machine on the tube, it's eaten my money. I wouldn't <laughs> want to put 40 quid in for some eyelashes. You know, there's a number you can call there and they'll send you a voucher for like £1.20. Yeah. It's really not worth your time, but it, it can happen. And I know that you love to pursue a consumer complaint. Well, nor is the chocolate worth £1.20 in the first place. That's the thing. You're paying a premium for the for the placement of those machines. And yet every time I fall for it, every time. Hello, this is Joe in Seattle. Um, and Helen and Ali answer me this. How many nipples do bears have? Because they don't have many offspring. So maybe two or... Four? Something in between? It does vary a bit bear by bear. So the general answer I seem to find uh, is four to six. But often it's like they effectively have four nipples and then two that are kind of residual nipples Mm -hmm. that either don't do anything or like uh, they are the first nipples the bear gets. Because like bear cubs seem to be born like really, really small. Like they're not that developed after gestating. And usually like with a brown bear or black bear, like... It happens while they're hibernating in the den. So Tiny Bear is born and then like manages to crawl to the nearest pair of nipples mm. and like latches onto those and then basically stays nursing for about 150 days. Jesus. Until they go outside. They'll start off on the bottom set of nipples and then once they're big enough, they'll go up to the top four. Like an adjustable cot. <laughs> right. Yeah, just levelling up. So apparently uh, first time mother bears, I think this is black or brown bears, they tend to have one cub, but then subsequent pregnancies will be two. So it makes sense to have uh, spares. And do male presenting bears also have nipples as humans do? Or is it just females in the bear kingdom? Well, there was surprisingly not as much information about bears nipples that I was able to access on the internet without uh, going down the wrong paths. I read that black bears, the females have six nipples, but the males only have two. Right, okay. Oh. Polar bears also have four nipples that work and then they may have two non-functioning nipples towards the back. So like okay. near the vagina there is, there's two nipples that don't really do anything. Oh, right. So is that just waiting to be evolutioned out then? Yeah, I guess so. Because I read about um, selenodons, which are like little shrews, rodent things. Oh, yeah. They have nipples on their asses, <laughs> but those are their functioning nipples. Wow. And I was thinking why, but actually what you said about crawling to the nipple for the... Because you think about babies, humans obviously pass the baby to the nipple, often with some difficulty, but nonetheless, an adult's there to pick them up. I hadn't really thought about, in the natural world, the baby's born and it has to find its own nipple sometimes. Makes sense, I guess, for the proximity to be right there. Yeah, it sort of makes sense to have uh, some of the nipples on the ass as well, because... Uh... I mean, it's a little bit uh, easier for the front of the uh, Solenodon to do stuff. Mm. Reminds me a bit of marsupials, because it's like when marsupials are born, they're really, really tiny, aren't they? Yeah, well, I was reading about uh, a marsupial. I was reading about the opossum. So after just 12 days, an opossum baby will be born with only 9% of their brain developed. Wow. And they're blind and they're deaf still, but they do have massive claws. They can climb up the mother's body into the pouch. Then they latch onto the teeth and don't let go for two months. Jeez. The nipples swell inside their mouths, 
creating an almost unbreakable lock. Wow. And then the opossum's nipple will stretch and grow up to 35 times its original length. One day, the BBC Earth Department will make a 12-part box set just about nipples. (laughs) And I'm here for that. Yeah, very interesting. Planet nipples. Do you know, I only realised the other day, I'm not embarrassed to say, I just hadn't thought about it, that mammals are only called mammals because we have mammary glands and we feed via nipples. That's our thing. Yeah. I also read that there's only like 6,000 kinds of mammals, which didn't seem that much given how many arachnids there are. Still, 6,000 episodes of Nipple Earth. Lots to get through. (laughs) If you've got a question... Here's an email with an incredible first sentence from Katie from Birmingham, who says... I got amnesia when I was at university. Wowee. I was able, she says, to retain information from things that were constant during that time, such as family and close friends, Mm -hmm. but forgot most of my childhood memories and had to relearn my entire course, (laughs) which was a huge bummer. Oh, that is... I mean, all the emotional stuff seems like an awful lot to bear, but just that practical part, oh, fucking hell, that's unfair. Yeah. Because, like, like learning to walk again, if that's necessary, that is important. The you before the amnesia would have been able to say whether it was worth doing the lectures again, but then you wouldn't remember whether it was worth doing the lectures again. Mm. Oh. I now get into odd situations, she says, where someone who knew me before the amnesia sees me in the street and then comes to talk to me. Oh, Lord. I have to politely inform them that I've had an illness which caused me to lose all memory of them. So, sorry, I do not remember, quote, that really funny time when. Do people have seen too many light comedy films where amnesia is just sort of played as a, a funny joke and a bit of a romantic like memento. Uh, obstacle? I wouldn't say memento is a light comedy, but okay. What were you thinking of? Because I can't think of any, but uh, maybe if you reminded me, ironically, I would remember. I suppose Fifty First Dates. Don't that's a sort of amnesia that. rom-com. It's Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. Whereas actually, in reality, that would be very difficult in a relationship. It's a lot for everyone concerned to deal with. I imagine it'd be very hard as well for, you know, your family and friends. You could, well, it'd be hard for your family and friends if you were dating Adam Sandler, period. Ah, and yet, just uh, this short email we've had from Katie makes it seem like not a super rom-com kind of ailment. Anyway, uh, here's the question. No matter how much I stress that I've lost all memories before the age of 20... People seem either a little hurt that they didn't make the cut into things that I do remember, or are just really weirded out that they're now talking to someone who might as well be a stranger to them. So, Helen, answer Mm. me this. How do I go about letting people down gently? Is there something I can say to the people that I inadvertently offend? Or is there some way for me to pretend that I know these people without getting into the details of my illness? I think, firstly... I would just like to say I'm not well qualified to answer this question because I have never had amnesia <laughs> nor been a person who knows someone with amnesia. So or treated I feel... amnesia for that matter. Right. Sure. Bare nipples, you were fine to wade in on. But, uh... Oh, I'm an expert on those. I, I will say I feel like it's unfair that the onus is on you to make them feel better. Mm. Yes. Given that this is far more of an inconvenience for you all day, every day, than it is for them occasionally bumping into you. Yeah, and actually that's why it's important, I think, that she doesn't pretend. Yeah. You know, she says, is there some way for me to pretend? No, because this isn't your problem. 
you shouldn't have to pretend. That should be the opening principle. It's also so uncommon that A, the person would be really surprised and B, probably spending the first minute or so working out like, is this person being serious or, or is this like a prank they're playing on me? Because mm. it just seems like a joke. Obviously, it's not a joke. It's a serious thing. But if I walked up to someone that, on the street that I know and went, oh, hi, and they went, I've got amnesia, I don't remember you, I just, I'd find it very, very strange. So there's... Maybe something where you can store for time and give them an adjustment period would be quite useful. Yeah, that's probably quite wise to consider how they're feeling too. Yeah, but I'd imagine like if they're people that are more than passing acquaintances, then they will have had time to absorb this information. Yeah, but you wouldn't know, would you, whether they are more than passing acquaintances? That's the issue. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I wonder whether if they become a part of Katie's present life, whether she is able to remember them or, or how it works. I mean, we don't, we don't have mm. the detail on uh, how the condition is playing out now mm. if you do have friends in your life still from school you know the close friends that you said you retained i wonder whether you could kind of get them on your side where they kind of pass this information on to the wider circle of school acquaintances you know they could do it in a gossipy way but with intent that people know and so when they meet you they are prepared and they're like, oh, hi, Katie, uh, we went to school together and my name is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Part of it, I think, is just them knowing what they're navigating and not making more work for you. But I wonder also whether if there's anything that you have learned since about what happened at school that you could then just deploy in a kind of moving things on quickly and distracting them situation where you could be like, I got amnesia, so... I'm really trying to fill in the gaps. I heard that this and this happened. Can you confirm that? And just get them on yes. to like reminiscing about a thing, like something yes. they could tell you. That's clever, yeah. But also then they feel helpful. I guess the, the issue is it's open to abuse, isn't it, for that person if they weren't, if they were the school bully, mm. they've got an option to say, oh yeah, we were great friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always hang out together and uh, school was great. Bye. Well, what if Katie was the school bully though? And they were like, <laughs> I always feared you. Then <laughs> you made my life hell. Oh, then you'd be basically Jason Bourne, wouldn't you? Like, you know, whole skills oh, yeah. that you've forgotten about that you're now able to recall on and you don't know why. Yeah, why have I got four passports and the ability to kill someone with just ordinary household items? <laughs> yeah. That's, again, the thing, though, like the way that amnesia is uh, kind of played for shock and laughs in media, yes. I think, is probably not helping Katie with just the mundanity of day-to-day -day life. If Harold Bishop hadn't fallen off a cliff and been washed into the sea, <gasps> I wouldn't know what amnesia was, or I wouldn't have learnt what amnesia was until I was about 18, whereas oh, I did learn it when I was 10 because of Madge's plight, yeah. So actually, I think it's not a subject that drama should avoid completely because it does educate people. Yeah, I just think there are certain ways in which it has educated people incorrectly. Yeah, well, yeah, Harold remembered everything after a year and joined the Salvation Army, and that was fine. I suppose the other option is just to... Uh on a disguise whenever you're out and about well just deflect i mean actually you know that's what i do when i don't recognize someone who comes up to me is i deflect with generic questions how are you uh are you working today oh it's been a while since we last saw each other hoping that in their answers i will then suddenly remember who they are yeah i mean katie you know that you're not going to suddenly remember but Actually, the technique could remain the same, couldn't it? They may reveal themselves without you having to say anything. You might be able to piece together enough for you to be able to have a, a basic how are you conversation. I suppose, Katie, if you are really uh, not too bothered about this person, you just really need this to be a small talk exchange and nothing more. Just ask them where they're going or where they've come from 
and then you don't even have to say, oh, how are the kids? Oh, you don't have any. Oh, I couldn't remember. It's happened to me in the past where a stranger has come up to me and obviously mistaken me and because I was too polite to be like, <laughs> I don't know who you are. Like we had about like a, it's probably a 60 second conversation along the lines of like, Oh, hi, how's it going? You know, how are things? What, how, are you still in the same job? Who broke it off? He saw me a long way, a long way away uh, on Hungerford Bridge and shouted someone's name. And I had my headphones in, so I didn't hear, hear right. what name he shouted. Oh, so no. then I went over and went, oh, how's it going? And he kind of looked like a dude that I might have met at a party five years ago. But this is a fun beginning for a rom-com, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> How many social networks are you on? Vivo, Friendster, PathUPorn, MySpace, Ping and Google Buzz. If you want to be our pal, go to this URL. Facebook.com slash answer me this Or Twitter.com slash Helen and Dolly But please don't follow us in real life Thank you to our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus who bring world-class professors into your home without you having to kidnap anyone. Or without you even having to get dressed (laughs) in academically suitable clothes. Or at all. Watch it in bed. Yeah, I guess so. I was uh, watching it in my pyjamas on the sofa uh, just this morning. I was uh, watching Food, A Cultural Culinary History. And what did you learn? Well, it was super interesting. I I was watching the episode Food Imperialism Around the World because I'd been spending quite a lot of time recently wondering about colonialization cultural appreciation cultural appropriation where ingredients originated versus where they are associated with and Mm -hmm. there's a lot to get into and covers a lot of ground this series it basically covers uh, a lot of human history via food from the stone age to the present i've also actually been watching a culinary uh, lecture series Uh, i've been um, enjoying the everyday guide to wine oh yeah so there's a wine master she has some really useful mnemonics actually so that you can appear to know what you're doing oh yeah give us a mnemonic chest chin nose Basically, when you're doing that thing where you sniff the wine, instead of sticking your nose right in it, Mm. what the connoisseur does is chest, chin, nose, so that you properly get the bouquet. So you put the glass first on your chest, sort of under your breastbone, Mm -hmm. then on your chin, and then you sniff again, and then in your nose, so you can smell the difference of the various different approaches of the wine as it comes towards your face, rather than just sticking your head right in it. Uh, Anyway, you can discover uh, whatever you like about food imperialism or wine or a bunch of, I mean, like loads of other courses. Everything. uh, Absolutely everything you can imagine. Business, history, travel. Uh, And we can offer you an entire month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free, just for being a listener to Answer Me This. Ah, well done you. Sign up today at our special URL to get started. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Here's a question from Beth from Sheffield who says, I have been spending a lot of time browsing YouTube lately. And the other day, I came across a video of the drag queen Trixie Mattel making tiny little pretzels in an easy bake oven. You and half a million others. Beth says, I've spent the past 28 years regularly consuming American media. So I was vaguely aware of easy bake ovens, but had no Mm. idea how awesome they were. When I was a kid, I went through a phase of constantly badgering my busy mum and dad to help me make biscuits and cupcakes in the actual oven. So a toy that lets kids make real edible treats with minimal supervision and less chance of burning the house down would have been perfect for me. If I had ever seen an advert for an Easy Bake Oven, I'm sure the eight-year-old me would have sold her little soul for it or just begged my parents for it for my birthday. Uh But after a bit of Googling, 
I can't find any reference to Easy Bake Ovens ever being available in the UK. The only way to get one, it seems, is to order one on Amazon from an American seller for several hundred pounds. Well, I have found one for £83, uh, but that is discounted from 138 quid, and that's still three times the price of the US RRP of $40, and presumably would incur extra costs in swapping the voltage around. Ollie, answer me this. Why is this? Is there something in the oven that is considered dangerous by British standards? Why must British children be denied tiny pretzels? <laughs> Well, uh, to quote yourself back at you, Beth, uh, there is less chance of burning the house down using an Easy Bake Oven (laughs) than an actual oven. Uh, But there is still a very real chance. So Uh. I suspect ultimately for the past, say, two or three decades, uh, heightened culture of health and safety. Actually, that's really been the reason is that it is a bit of a fire risk, this toy. Right. I can't find the smoking gun. Uh, or the smoking molten plastic toy. <laughs> but I presume there is an EU regulation somewhere that would prohibit the sale of an Easy Bake Oven, because not only can you not buy it anywhere in Europe, there's also not an equivalent product that's made. Oh, do you think after Brexit, then Britain will set fire to itself with toy ovens? <laughs> Quite possibly. But I think the reason as to why there wasn't a British version of this hugely popular American toy, I mean, it sold... Uh, half a million units in its first year in the USA Wow! is actually a cultural one. The toy was released in 1963. And I think it's easy to forget these days in a world of Great British Bake Off and everyone fetishizing Greg Sausage Rolls and all the rest of it. I think in 1963, baked goods just weren't as big a deal for children here in the UK as they were in the USA. I mean, they, they have a sweeter tooth in North America which is still the case. I mean, you go there and you're always overwhelmed by the amount of options and that there are restaurants like Dairy Queen that just do ice cream and all the rest of it. But I mean, then especially, and the whole kind of home-baked apple pie thing, it's more of an American cultural thing. So I I disagree. I think Britain has like a very strong cake culture that goes back a very long way. But I think in 1963, people weren't necessarily buying such extravagant toys for their children. I think there was probably still less disposable income. More of a post-war approach. Yeah, exactly. Even though rationing had been lifted and all of that. So it's either like you're old enough to use a proper oven or you can fucking play with fake food. That's all. There's no in-between. How hot does an Easy Bake Oven go? I thought it was just a light bulb that gently warmed things that were already edible. But no? Historically, it was two 100-watt bulbs... Uh, you can't even buy those bulbs anymore, and it would go as hot as 350 degrees. Fahrenheit, so, Celsius. Fahrenheit, yeah. Enough to dry out a cookie. <laughs> but now they use a heating element, so it's not actually light bulb powered anymore. I mean, however many safety checks they put on it, at the end of the day, it's got a heating element in it. Why are you letting your children play with that unsupervised? They're still age eight and up. I was using the real oven by the time I was eight. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, actually, that's a responsible thing to do, isn't it? Teach your kids how to... Uh, effectively and safely use a kitchen. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I think the Easy Bake doesn't help with that. Like, I understand the theory that it might because it gives them a sense of you have to put the cold food in and it comes out hot. But because they try and seal off some of the dangers, like the door on the front doesn't open, for example. What? You slide stuff in the side. Um, It probably gives you a false expectation of how safe an oven really is. Mm. Although, like, because you're sliding food in sideways, because they've sealed the door, you can't clean it. Not properly. You can just stick like a, a spray in there, but you can't get in and work around all the crap in there and then you eat what comes out from inside. Oh, or do you? Or are you just like, oh, that's lovely, That's lovely, dear. Dear. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? You're giving your children a gift that is then repeated on you every time they cook something. You've got to taste this shit. I've never been super keen to eat something that a child has made me. Here's another question of Cakes from Vincent, who says, 
answer me this. What is the etymology of the word flapjack? Uh, Why and when did its use in the UK and North America diverge? And do other countries use the word? It is also a wrestling move. Is it when you were rolled oats in your opponent's face? <laughs> it's more distraction tactic than something that's going to make them down for the count, isn't it? I wasn't aware there was a distinction between the uh, American approach to flapjacks and the British. Can you delineate that first? Yeah, so in Britain, we know the flapjack as a dense, sweetened oat bar, like a tray bake, often with raisins or chocolate chips in or bits of nuts. Whereas in the USA, flapjack just means a pancake. They have so many terms that just mean pancake, I guess because language is regional, but pancakes are quite a widespread foodstuff. The American-style pancake, I'm thinking the buttermilk pancake here, is typically thicker. Yeah, fluffy. Yeah. Yeah, it's that kind. So I'm just wondering whether flapjack in any way suggests a more European style of pancake or not really? Actually, and this is going to upset some people, that kind of flapjack is much earlier than the oat flapjack. Wow. Yep. It's in uh, the Shakespeare play Pericles. Someone's like, let's go off and eat flapjacks. <laughs> is that really what they say? Well, I'm paraphrasing because I don't speak Shakespearean. <laughs> but, the, but then if Shakespeare was writing it in Britain, how could he possibly be referring to the pancake flapjack from North America? No, the point is not that the flapjack itself is American. It's that the term means what it means in America before it ah. means the British way. People always assume that if it's an Americanism, it's newfangled. Yeah. But that is often not the case. There's a great book, The Prodigal Tongue by Lynn Murphy, if you want to get more into US and British English differences. And uh, might stop you getting so arrogant about which the right one is. So the word is at least 400-ish years old. It meant kind of a variety of things. So it could have meant a flat tart or a turnover or a pancake or just like a dessert cooked in a flat pan and flipped. So the flap was just, you flip it. And the jack apparently was either just like a generic term for an object, so it just meant flipped thing, or more specifically, a smallish thing. So a flipped smallish Mm. thing. But the oat bar meaning is only about 100 years old. Right. I think where that originates from is essentially like people using up cold porridge. So they'd make a big vat of porridge, have it hot in the morning, Mm. then leave it to solidify and cut it into cubes and fry that up and use that as a savoury or a sweet carb. Yes. And also there's this myth that that is very widespread, but without a lot of proof to it, that in Scotland they would cook up the porridge in the morning, eat it, and then pour it into a drawer (laughs) and have a porridge drawer where they would cut the, uh, the slices of it out of. Maybe that's what was in Alan Partridge's hotel room drawer. In the 90s I hired a 12-person web team To build and run my websites and I realised my tech dream Then the dot-com bubble burst and I had to drown them in a stream Why didn't I just sack them? But now, thanks to Squarespace, you can do it alone And build a lovely website for tablet or smartphone Enjoy it now, cause in ten years you'll be replaced by a drone Just like Terminator 3 Thanks be to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And for making it possible for you to design incredible websites. Really cool feature that I've just found out about that they have. Uh, It does cost a little bit extra, but if you're setting up a business um, that requires clients to book appointments using your website, they now have this thing called Squarespace Scheduling. And essentially that means they power the system that allows your clients to book 
appointments or classes oh. and emails them their appointment, syncs it with your Google Calendar so you don't have to speak to them about their boring Just. lives. You don't have to be like, well, can you do Wednesday at 10? Oh, no. Oh, no. That's when I see my physiotherapist. Don't care. Just do it all through the computer and then get it seamlessly all uh, synced with your website. Ka-ching. Very handy. Just head on down to squarespace.com slash answer and have a play around with their tools. Their drag and drop tools, their award-winningly designed templates. And then if you want to sign up, you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using our code answer. Here's a question from Ryan in Melbourne who says, usually when a woman does an at-home pregnancy test, it'll show up one for pregnant and two for not or vice versa. But Helen answered me this, what would happen if I, a man, tried it? Well, it might still come up with a positive result because it's looking for a hormone, a human uh, chorionic gonadotrophin, or HCG, and that's not exclusive to pregnant people. It does start to be produced about six days after fertilisation, but that is not the only thing that can make it detectable. It can happen as a result of certain medications, such as steroids, or some people take it to stimulate testosterone, or if you are undergoing fertility treatment, it might be present in your piss. But it is also an indication of cancer. Now, just if you decide to take a pregnancy test and it comes out positive, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, Ryan, have cancer, but I also wouldn't recommend taking a pregnancy test just to reassure yourself that you don't. Okay, um, but um, it is uh, a hormone that is released by several kinds of cancerous tumours. Right, but that must apply for people with wombs as well. Right, yeah. But yeah. I suppose that the point is that the presence of it in someone with a womb who's thinking they might be pregnant is much more likely to indicate pregnancy than not. Yes, I would say whether you have a womb or you don't and you get a positive result on a pregnancy test, it is worth seeking a medical opinion. But I wouldn't use one of these ones that Ryan's explaining here, actually, with one for pregnant, two for not, or vice versa, because right. that that kind of uh, 80s filing system of uh, <laughs> indicative results was spurned by us. We went for the uh, Idiot's Guide Pregnancy Kit, which just says, pregnant if you're pregnant. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, worth it. it's worth the extra two quid, because they're really expensive anyway. It was like yeah. the choice of, do you spend £14 or £18? Well, let's spend the £18. Let's get the digital read that says very clearly pregnant so that we know. Here's a question from Donna from Cornwall who says, I have seen a number of police cars and other emergency services in different countries. They all have blue flashing lights. Mm-hmm. Ollie, answer me this. Why are the lights blue? Who decided on this and why? Uh, I'm now thinking of the title sequence from Police Squad. Most older police cars actually used to have a single red light to indicate stop, oh. uh, particularly in the USA. Um, that was the predominant thing. Red light, stop when you see us. And in fact, the original rotating gumball light was red. Uh, that was called the Beacon Ray and introduced in 1948. Mm. But you are right, Donna, that uh, blue has uh, since become pretty much the universal colour. It wasn't any one decision. It was just because it stands out better. Like Internationally, mm-hmm. most cars have red as their brake light, and so blue sticks out more. It does make you think, what's that? And also, I'd imagine underneath uh, the orange glow of sodium lamps, blue also is more visible. Yeah, except at airports. That's the only place uh, police at the airport on the air side always use amber so that they're more mm. visible to pilots and they're not confused with landing lights on the oh. runway if they were blue. Whoa, that would be bad. And also, uh, since 9-11, you do see green emergency lights as well. I mean, I, huh. I say you see. I've never seen it. 
But uh, apparently that's used for counter-terrorism. Homeland security agencies and government private security agencies, if they're protecting high-risk infrastructure like, I don't know, a nuclear power station or something or a gas pipeline, you might see green spinning lights, which would make me think of like the mask or the green goblin or something. <laughs> I wonder why they get a special colour. That seems to me maybe a own goal, but obviously they've thought about it more than I have. I suspect I would fucking hope so. <laughs> yeah, I really hope so. If not, we're in deep shit. <laughs> um, I suppose it might be because it's not for the benefit of the public, actually. It's for the benefit of other emergency service workers. So if you imagine a, a terrorist event happening, then actually you can have lots of blue lights there, aren't you? With, uh, you know, ambulances, police, fire engines, search and rescue, human organs, bomb disposal, blood service, you know, all of that's blue lights. So I guess if you see the green one then and you're one of the emergency personnel, you move aside for the green people because they're coming to try and catch the terrorists. So I suppose that's the point. But yeah, it's a, a nuanced point that I did not know. So thank you for teaching it to me, Donna, by virtue of sending us this question. You know, sometimes you see a car and it just looks like a normal civilian car and then suddenly it's got blue flashes in the back. And you're like, oh, that was a plainclothes police car. Yes. But... Is there any law against putting flashing blue lights in or on your own civilian car? Shit, yes. Uh, In the UK, Mm -hmm. um, you can only fit an emergency vehicle with not only blue flashing lights, but anything that looks like a blue flashing light. You can't have a dummy turned off blue light on your car unless you are an emergency vehicle. Even to the extent where some vehicles that would be allowed to use blue flashing lights on private land, for example, an animal ambulance at a racetrack can't then have that same not turned on blue light fitted to their vehicle when they are on the M25 on the way home. So they just have to take take it off their roof and shove it in the back. You have to take it off the roof. Yeah, because it's just it's it's against the rules. Except in the case where for some reason the police are involved in escorting the injured horse, in which case you would be allowed your blue flashing light on because you're part of the uh, procession of cars that are under the instruction of the police. Are you allowed to put blue flashing lights on a bike or a horse or other form of transport that's not a car? No, I don't believe nothing, so. Just no, nothing? No, I, I think I mean, I think there's probably discretion there, isn't there? Can you put one on your head and run around going, Nino, Nino? Exactly. <laughs> I think generally speaking, if a five-year-old does that with disco lights, they'll probably get away with it. But uh, technically, no. Answer me this. You said I could return this pair of tights within 28 days without affecting my statutory rights. Didn't you? Now I'm staying up all night and I'm shaking and shivering with fright because you made me replace my living room lights claiming eco bulbs will be just as bright. Didn't you? And I only got this limited sight and now it's getting too dark to write so I, it's, I don't know, uh, something about Vietnam and Abraham and Steve Krem. Here's a question from Daniel, who says, My wife and I are in the process of viewing new places to rent. In one of the properties, in the corner of the basement, there is a closet with a small lock installed by the property manager, which, we were told, the property manager will use to keep things. Uh-huh. After some discussion, my wife and I have found ourselves on opposite sides of this debate. I think that because we're renting, the owner has a right to keep a space as long as we agree on terms of when they can retrieve items. Uh huh. I mean, that's just a fact, isn't it? I mean, the owner does have that right. It's a question of how you feel about it. But my wife is worried about the contents and our proximity simply because it's an unknown. 
Ollie, answer me this. How concerned should I be? And would this alone be a deal breaker on an otherwise fine pick for housing? Oh, it definitely shouldn't be a deal breaker because it's in the basement. Uh, I think if it was in the bedroom, I would understand your wife's concerns much more readily. But I think basement and attic, they're essentially kind of bonus spaces, really, aren't they? And I think it's reasonable to sequester some of. And the truth is, what's kept in there, I understand the sort of nagging uncertainty. You know, this is classic kind of Wes Craven stuff. (laughs) What's in the closet? (laughs) Probably something really boring is the answer. Probably something only relevant to the occasional maintenance of the property. Exactly. It's it's probably a lawnmower or, yeah, some shears. It's probably just something really dull. Me and my mum actually lease out part of my dad's old business premises. And... I've kept a shed on that property, uh, and the only reason is because it's got an old welding machine in it, which is fixed to the floor. It's really heavy. Oh, wow. And the cost of getting rid of it would be really prohibitive. So I've excluded it from the tenant's lease, but I do wonder if they think, what's he got in there? What is he keeping? Is that where he buries the bodies? Whereas the truth is so dull. Like, it's an, it's an outmoded welding machine and about 20 Pritt sticks. Couldn't you just tell them what is in there, and then they wouldn't be curious? Or even show them. No, because they've never asked. <laughs> they've never asked. So, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm imagining they internalise these feelings. Have you ever been tempted to make it look a bit pranky with, like, some rubber body parts uh, peeking <laughs> from under the door, some flashing lights in there, some taped screams? No, but I do occasionally go there to retrieve the Pritt sticks, for example, um, or other bits of, like, paper and stationery that I've kept in there. And I tend to go at night... And I do that because I'm working during the day. But again, I wonder whether if they see me on their security camera, they'd be like, why does he only come here at night? I don't know where Daniel is, but in Britain, at least, the landlord is required to give 24 hours written notice of intent to come to the property. Yes. So you have that in your favour. You know, they're not going to just be barging in at all hours because it's illegal. You guys are not property owners. How do you feel about it? I mean, if if you were renting somewhere and, and, and you had this provision, would it bother you? Not really, especially not in a basement, if that was not, you know, a major part of the housing. If they were like, well, you can't use half the kitchen cabinets because of me, then that would be a bit different. For me, it'd be more about the intrusion than the than the space. But like basement yeah. isn't that intrusive, but it's just like when you're a tenant, you want to feel like it's your home, even though yeah. it kind of isn't. <laughs> you just don't want the landlord tipping up and being like, hi, just come to get my bike. Yeah, if it's stuff they're having to use every day, I think that is unacceptable. But if it's yes. like the property's Christmas lights and they'll come in once a year to get them and once a year to put them away, yeah, then fine. I think there are many ways in which as a renter, you feel very insecure and very powerless. And maybe it is uh, just amplifying those feelings it's like the physical manifestation of those feelings where the space isn't truly yours and your privacy could be violated at any time so i think just make sure you have a clear agreement with them about how often they plan to access it that brings us to the end of this episode of answer me this but please supply questions for the next episode of answer me this you can write us an email or you can record your voice as a voice memo and then email that to us all our contact details are on our website answermethispodcast.com and you can follow the links there as well to find us on Twitter and Facebook and if you head on over to answermethisstore.com now you can buy our first 200 episodes for just 79 pence each or even more bargainously our brand new one hour album Home Entertainment for pay what you like and if what you like is nothing it's available for nothing if what you like is a hundred pounds thank you (laughs) you can pay that as well whatever you think it is worth a lot of you being so generous and it's extremely touching because you don't have to 
You chose to. Indeed. We really appreciate it. That's very kind. But also we're very happy for you to have it for free. We are. It is Pay What You Like. Uh, and therein, within that album, you can find out how much Justin Timberlake got paid for singing I'm Loving It. Certainly wasn't Pay What You Want from McDonald's, was it? And you can find out what a Wonderwall is. I was about yeah. to say definitively, but we've had people get in touch with feedback questioning our answer, but I think it's thorough enough. I really did a lot of research into the Wonderwall thing. Yeah. That I don't think there are many questions in my mind, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. And also you can check out our other work. Ollie, what have you got in the pipeline in the month of July 2020? Yes, I do five podcasts. You can discover them all at ollieman.com. Uh, one of them is The Modern Man, M-A-N-N, which is my magazine show about trends and sex and amazing true stories. This month, I interview the inventor of Friends Reunited. Ah. Her name is Julie Pankhurst. She lives around the corner from me. And huh. when I realised that, I spent three years stalking her until I got <laughs> to agree to an interview. Not at all weird. She is very very reluctant to do it that's so interesting sites that were big and then now not it, it's like the fall of the roman empire or something it's absolutely the story of social networking basically like they invented friends reunited her and her husband 20 years ago that's three years before myspace and four years before facebook yeah it's really fascinating i'm so pleased that i did actually manage to get to speak to her and now she's like stay away from my property i've given you Never what you want me leave me alone yeah, uh, and you can hear that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Helen? Yes, uh, I have two podcasts, The Illusionist and uh, Veronica Mars Investigations. We're halfway through season two of Veronica Mars. Uh, it's a bumpy ride. I'm very exhausted by the amount of plot. And in The Illusionist for Pride Month, I have done a couple of episodes about queer vocabulary in oppressed languages. Okay, I've, I will check that out because I've previously enjoyed your episodes about Polari, for example. Yeah. And you did one about pride, didn't you? The meaning of the word pride, I think. Yeah, that was back in the first year. Yeah, I did uh, why they chose pride for the first pride as opposed yeah, to other words. Yeah, it was really interesting. And there's one about the word queer itself. And about the history of the word bisexual, which has had a very tricky lifetime. That's all at theillusionist.org. And Martin, you are no stranger to talking on microphone yourself. Yeah, uh, I have a podcast called Song by Song, which is about the music of Tom Waits. And we've got some lovely guests coming up. Uh, Charlie Harding from the podcast Switched on Pop. Oh, it's one of your faves, isn't it, Ollie? Switched on Pop. The podcast? Yeah, love it. Love a bit of, uh, like, really quite serious analysis of Ed Sheeran lyrics. Uh, you can find that at songbysongpodcast.com. And then we will be back with a retro episode halfway through the month and with a fresh new episode of Answer Me This on the first Thursday of August. So join us for that. Bye! Bye.